Welcome to episode number 21 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we celebrate the life of the legendary Hans Werner Krose, a glider pilot who set the bar for long-distance flying. We speak to longtime friends who remember this remarkable man. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Colorado for an in-depth look at the Boulder Soaring Association, where the Rocky Mountains provide a stunning backdrop to flying in this part of the USA. Further to the northeast in New Hampshire, there's a single glider wing up in the mountains above the local glider port. We talk to a pilot who has tried to unravel the mystery. That and a whole lot more on episode number 21 of The Thermal. Werner Grosse was a gliding legend, a glider pilot that lived to soar long distances. He recently died in Germany at the ripe old age of 98. During his gliding career, he set at least 50 gliding records. Arguably, his most famous flight was made in 1972 when he flew a new free-distance world record flight of 1,460.8 kilometers. The flight took him from his home city of Lübeck in northern Germany to Biarritz in southwest France. This flight was and continues to be awe-inspiring. Gliding author and coach Bernard Ecke knew Hans Werner Grosse well and also flew with him. I reached Bernard at his home in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Bernard. Thanks for coming back onto the podcast to talk about uh, Hans Werner Gross. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm honored to um, become involved. Thanks. So, talk to me about Hans Werner Gross. What made him such an amazing pilot? Well, I think it comes down to his uh, uh, unrelenting drive to explore the frontiers of of our sport. I think he was never satisfied with any of his achievements and he always looked for opportunity to improve on past performances. Um, And in the end, this made him go to Central Australia. And I think that was in the the early 80s. And that's where he uh, set uh, the bulk of his 50 or so world records. But uh, later he flew out of Newman, and that's a, a relatively small mining town in the northwest of Australia. Uh, if I'm not very much mistaken, he never won a world championship, but uh, he came close. I think he uh, placed I think second, he came, I read somewhere. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, he came second once. But later he uh, abandoned competition flying in order to focus on long-distance flying and, um, and on setting records. Now you, you, flew, uh, you flew with him in Australia? No, no, I, I didn't fly with him in Australia. I flew with him in Germany. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, but anyway, he did this, this long-distance flying, that was his real passion. And that is where he undoubtedly excelled the most. Well, the... There's that, that famous story of, and that record, I think, still stands to this day, the flight that he made from Germany to, I think, Biarritz in France. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that really uh, it shook the gliding world. Uh, we mustn't forget that that record was established in a Schleicher ASW-12, a very early fiberglass aircraft. 
and when you compare it with today's uh, ships, it has a rather modest performance. Uh, still, he flew from the far north of Germany via Holland and Belgium into France and only landed close to the Spanish border. I think it was somewhere near the town of Biarritz. Right, and, and, and it was 1,500 kilometers, I think, in the end? Yeah, just under 1,500, uh, I believe. And this record stood for well over 30 years. And it's still the only flight of his distance in normal convective conditions. Right. Um, I mean, we had a pretty good flight by uh, an Australian pilot in an uh, ASG-29. He did 1,400 uh, uh, kilometers, but didn't break uh, uh, Hans Werner's record from 30 years ago. And these days, uh, people travel to uh, South Australia, uh, Patagonia, to be more precise, fly and wave. And that has resulted in um, Hans Werner's um, records being broken. Now, now, this flight that he did 30-plus uh, years ago, I understand on the continent of Europe that that flight record still stands. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, and I believe that the, what this flight did is still largely underestimated to this day. Mm -hmm. It has inspired a whole generation of pilots, including myself. Okay. And it has also served to attract more people to our sport. No question about that. Now, I read somewhere about that flight that he landed near Biarritz in southern France, but would have kept going but was a bit apprehensive about uh, Franco was still in power in Spain. He, he could have made it further, but he was worried about crossing into an unknown country. Yeah, not only that, I believe he also was concerned that he ran out of maps. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he uh, also feared that uh, the flight wouldn't be recognized if he landed in Spain for some reason. But I'm not entirely, entirely sure on that. Wow. Now, now earlier you mentioned you'd flown with him in Germany. What, what was that like? Oh, I tell you, that was a real eye-opener. <laughs> um, I still remember it to this day. Uh, we kept in touch over the phone, and I left at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning or something to get to his place in Lübeck. And all the way to Lubeck, it was uh, drizzling and uh, we had a very, very low cloud base. Uh, but when I got to him and uh, he then showed me his uh, private weather station with all the satellite receivers, uh, rain radar and all these other gadgets, uh, uh, totally uh, unique in those days. Um, then he said, oh, don't worry, Bernard, um, we can fly later in the afternoon. Um, but uh, I had my doubts because the sky remained totally overcast and grey. And in the end, we went to the airport, got got the ETA ready and uh, uh, launched in the ETA at uh, Lübeck Airport between uh, RPT traffic taking off and landing. <laughs> now, you, and, uh, I'm going to interrupt yeah. just for a sec. This glider, the ETA, the ETA, this was a unique, like, one-off 31-meter glider that he was involved with and helped build. What, talk to me a bit about that. Well, it wasn't really a one-off. I think they built a total of five or six. Okay. And uh, Hans Werner was certainly the initiator of this uh, uh, program. 
um, and uh, it was a 31 meter uh, glider, self-launcher and two-seater. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, I flew it. It uh, wasn't the most agile of gliders, but in a slight and relatively low speed, it was just a remarkable performance. And this is the glider that you went up with uh, Hans in. What was that? What was that flight like? Ah, oh, yeah, it was it was phenomenal because I didn't think we could uh, do m more than just a bit of local flying. Uh, but um, yeah, we we took off when it was still totally overcast, and uh, when we climbed through about two or three thousand feet, he spotted a. A sunlit spot on the ground and went for it, found a, a thermal there, and then we had enough height to glide into a, a sandy patch of the country and we spent the whole afternoon there <laughs> uh, fantastic and and what, what what was he like as a man was he was he a talkative kind of guy what was he friendly what, what how would you describe him oh he was um, yeah just one of these people that uh, uh, makes friends easily. He was a, a great mentor. He was happy to share his knowledge and expertise mm -hmm. with anyone who showed interest. And uh, yes, when I flew with him, I just couldn't believe uh, that he passed up one week climb after the other. And then sometimes we got down to 800 feet or even lower. And uh, I got a bit nervous and was suggesting that uh, we we get out get the engine out, but he always found a lift a lift again, and um, we eventually went all the way near the Bremen airport, um, and then we, when we went home, I got to fly this this truly remarkable ship. Now let's go back in history a little bit. I understand he learned to fly in the 1930s as a teenager, like so many German pilots did at the time. What, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, he's certainly one of these uh, young men that learned to fly uh, in the Hitler youth. Okay. Um, uh, yes, that, um, that shaped him, of course. Um, he he uh, even crashed a glider when he was only 15 or 16 years of age mm -hmm. but uh, he he recovered and uh, in his teens he was then by the german air force uh, converted into a into a bomber pilot right right i did read about that i mean almost uh, all german glider pilots at the time i mean that's how germany was training it it's Air Force at the time, and and they all got shuffled into the Luftwaffe, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was the idea by the, the Nazi regime. They trained them up in gliders and got them enthusiastic, and then they turned them into fighter pilots and bomber pilots. Now, Hans Werner, uh, you mentioned he crashed a glider, but I understand he was also shot down at one point. I think flying a, a bomber somewhere in the Mediterranean. Yeah, that was during the war years. I, I think you're right. He was shot down over the Mediterranean and uh, he again got injured, I understand. 
And when he recovered, he was uh, then sent off to Scandinavia and he finished his, uh, the war as a, a, a pilot in uh, Norway, I understand. Right, right. Now, so the, the war finishes and I guess he has to make a living and he starts providing for his family and then he gets back into gliding and that's when, when his real gliding career started. Is that right? Yes, I think he was one of these remarkable men who was not only a, a, a top pilot, but he was also a very, very smart businessman. So when, when the war ended, he saw a, um, an opportunity to set up a business that uh, mainly deals in more casual and less formal clothing. And together with his wife, uh, Karen, they um, set up a, a, a retail shop right in the historic center of uh, Lübeck. Uh, Lübeck is uh, a, a medium-sized town in the far north of Germany. And uh, both of them worked hard to turn that into a successful business, which in the end allowed him to uh, yeah, um, S support his gliding habit, I guess. And fly in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Good for him. That's fantastic. Now, yep. from all the stuff I've read about him, he seems to be one of these almost super glider pilots. In the German gliding soaring world, where would you put him? Is he right at the very top? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, I mean, he was a, a true pioneer. And uh, these days, um, there is other people who uh, have uh, made a name for themselves. Uh, for instance, Klaus Ollmann, he was sort of uh, uh, behind the um, Perlin project and uh, he has now uh, broken his records uh, in Patagonia. Mm -hmm. uh, but Hans-Werner Gross was definitely the person that everyone looked up to in Germany. Wow. Now you you're you have considerable flying experience all over the world you learned to fly in germany how will you remember uh this this glider pilot beyond uh, of all glider pilots well <laughs> um how do i remember um it, it he he has inspired so many people not only in germany but around the world and uh, everyone has looked up to him um, and uh, he was not only a good pilot but he was also a very uh, a modest man who never uh, sought the limelight uh, and he was doing a lot of work behind the scenes and uh, one of the examples is he was sort of helping uh, a lot with the uh, online contests at the age of 75 was made an honorable member of the german national team he was made an honorable member of the german uh, uh, aero club uh, and he received so many uh, accolades uh, that i've lost track of huh. well bernard thank you so much for telling us all about hans werner gross I, I i feel like i've really gotten a bit more insight into this pilot and I've been reading more about him, so I, I, I feel like I've gotten to know him a bit better. So very much appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, Harry. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you again. 
Okay. See you, Mike. Bye-bye. Bernard Ecke spoke to me from Adelaide, South Australia. Katrin Senna and her father, Klaus Kame, are longtime members of Germany's soaring community. Katrin is a world-class competition pilot, and Klaus was involved with designing gliders and also sold gliding instrumentation. Hans Werner Grosse was a friend and a client. I reached Katrin and Klaus in Edlingen, Germany. Hello, Klaus and Katrin. Thanks very much for coming onto the podcast to chat about Hans Werner Grosse. Hello. Nice to have you. So he was such a well-known pilot globally and, and much more so in, in Germany. How, how will you two remember him? Well, he was one of my two and a half thousand customers for gliding instruments. And, you know, I, I was teaching him on computers or the flight computer and and the, the flight recording so we could record his world records and he had he many world many. records oh yes i think over 50 he had at the end so what yeah. so, what was he like as a man when you got to know him what was he like for me he was always pushing himself i mean i can give you exact uh, one example on we participated at the St. Moritz marathon in Switzerland every year cross country uh, yeah cross country 42 kilometers skiing and skiing yes he said oh uh, I have no time today see you tonight or we call tonight because I have to do the marathon <laughs> one day in advance, you know, just to practice to place. Yeah. To practice it. I said, Hans Werner, you are crazy. <laughs> you will have muscle ache and tomorrow. But he said he was just running away and, and doing it. So, so he was a very active, person also at a high age so i think his last marathon he did with with 82 or 83 yeah. years still so he was very active so yeah, this is, is as an example tells you how active he was he was very motivated and driven and that obviously applied to his flying as well yeah i mean i don't i don't re i don't know sometimes he was in the cockpit for 10 hours on his very long flights. And Klaus, did you fly with him? Oh, I flew a lot with him. He always played, played the director. He just, just gave commands all the time. Yeah. And was it a natural thing? Do you feel that he was born the pilot that he was, or was it something that he had to work at? It's a difficult question. Yeah, yeah well, I think he was always driven by his, his records flights he wanted to do, his long-distance flights, and always pushing them further. And I think he was he was always, always on time, always, you know, the, the whole year uh, observing the weather conditions and always waiting for the right chance to 
to do more records and more flights. So he was really all the time on and ready to go, I think. Yeah. Did he inspire you, Katrin, as a, as a cross-country pilot, world champion that you are? Yeah, when he was talking about his flight, he was so enthusiastic about about what he has done or what he has achieved and what he was aiming for. So, so his spirit was really sparkling and and yeah, and transferring to one when you were listening to his stories. And for me, it was also this marathon story, you know, to get fit and how to be fit for long distance flights and how to keep your concentrations on for also for long flights. So he was he was training he was there in the in the St Moritz Valley for many weeks before the marathon was there because he said he has to adopt his red bl- blood um, to the altitude uh, yeah. to the altitude so he is in the oxygen in a in a, yeah, in a high in a high altitude camp and this is then also very good for his gliding afterwards to get fit to get fit again coming from Lübeck from Lübeck at zero sea level. <laughs> yeah. Right, in northern Germany. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And they were also flying there to St. Moritz with their, what did they have? A Cessna, Karin, his wife and he, himself. So he will, they were also flying sometimes with a, no. with a power plane down to, hmm. to Switzerland. Yeah. Now, Katrin, you're probably too young to remember, but I'm sure your father, Klaus, do you remember the flight that he made in the early 70s all the way down to Biarritz in southwest France? Yeah. 1,500 kilometer cross-country flight. Yeah, almost 1,500. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember exactly what, but that was in the newspaper and everywhere. And, and that record in Europe stands to this day. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Nobody has managed to get further. Until now, yeah. <laughs> Weather conditions have to be right. Now, I understand he also gave a lot back to the sport of gliding. Yeah, he was. He was the youngsters. The youngsters were, or the the youth gliding people. They were, yeah, they were grown to his heart. So he also made gliders modern yeah modern gliders available for the youngsters so they could fly his gliders which he has sponsored yeah this he has done for the upcoming glider pilots in fiberglass in fiberglass but he was very into gliding also at at a at a elderly age and he was all always to reading to yeah reading all the news which technical was going news. on in technical news and uh, I still remember. So my father was was a Cambridge dealer, and he he was a customer to him. But he was at some seasons he was calling every week. And after he has made a flight, how he uploaded the stuff, and how he has to do this, and then he needed yeah. new turn points in. And if my father wasn't there, he was phoning at my house, and it <laughs> could be half six in the morning. He didn't care. He didn't say hello or no. how are you. He said, "Where's Klaus? I need him." So boom, <laughs> demanding. So he was funny, but he was still a nice character, still a nice guy. But you know, he never told us his name, who he was on On the the phone. On the phone. But you You knew who he was. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) Very direct. What do you think his motivation was for all these long cross-country flights? What drove him? The sport. 
Nobody knows. Yeah, to, no, to push the boundaries, I think. To push the boundaries of what is possible with gliding, mm -hmm. with the high-end um, sailplane gliders. And, that and was he, pushing him, right? And he certainly did mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Klaus, how will you remember Hans Werner? Well, very pushy, but friendly. It's okay. And the inspiration, I think, for the whole gliding community. Yeah. Yeah. Good inspiration, I think. Well, I'm yeah. sure many glider pilots around the world will, will have a toast to Hans Werner, remembering all the, the records that he broke and what kind of trendsetter he was for the, the soaring world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is true. Anyway, again, very nice speaking with you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, good night. Start Bye. 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 Senna and her father Klaus came spoke to me from Edlingen, Germany. World record holder Hans Werner Grosse died in February at the age of 98. <laughs>
four fortinas these are mountains over 14,000 feet uh, high are within glide range from the boulder uh, airport nice um, yep so some of the tallest mountains in the continental united states you know your conditions sound just like uh, the conditions of the the club up up in alberta that I've uh, spoken to the chaps there a couple times, but it's the same thing. You're on the eastern side in the, in the foothills and the mountains climb up and it's the conditions are the same. Very similar, very similar. We're, we're even closer, I think, to the mountains, but it's very similar conditions, yeah. Right. So the airfield, uh, paved runways, grass strip, what do you have? Uh, we have, it's a very busy municipal airport. Uh, uh, so it's it's right actually in the city of Boulder. city of Boulder is about 100,000 people, um, which is one of the great things about our, our airport is not only the soaring is great, but you're in the Denver metropolitan area. So we have, a, you know, 3 million people that, that live in, you know, within 40 minutes drive range, uh, hmm. driving. Uh, we have a huge airport at the, the Denver uh, International Airport. Um, so this is where, you know, the best of soaring combines with excellent uh, uh, urban living uh, and, uh, you know, great growth in this area in particular. So it's great, great setting. Uh, the airport, as I said, it's busy municipal airport. We have uh, three parallel runways um, that uh, are so close to each other that you actually can only use one at a time. <laughs> Uh, so there's the the main power runway it's basically used mostly for powered flying um, and then we have parallel to that runway we have a, a very small narrow asphalt strip uh, which we use as the glider runway and and those runways are all uh, east-west uh, oriented um, so it's 826 um, and the uh, which is and the, the, the small glider strip is about um, you know three meters wide and 10 feet wide, something like that. Um, and uh, in between that dirt, in between that asphalt strip and the main runway is, is what we call the dirt runway. <laughs> and and it, there's just enough separation that if, if, if gliders land on these runways, the wings won't touch. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a busy airport. Um, people have to be really careful. Um, but uh, with great instruction and uh, and, uh, and a good safety record, so and airspace uh, issues there. Uh, well, we have the not all that much. I mean, there is there's a big airspace uh, to the to the east of us, which is uh, obviously the Denver International Airport. But the soaring is is much better over the mountains anyway. Mm -hmm. And so once you, all of our flights are, uh, you know, most of our flights are over the mountains. Right. We can go pretty unrestricted to the north, to the south, and to the west. And uh, we just stay away from the east uh, where the Denver International Airport is. Now, what kind of uh, fleet does your club have? Um, we have a DG505 uh, two-seater high-performance ship. We have an ASK21 as the basic trainer. Yeah. Uh, and we have two uh, this guy that are both equipped for uh, contest flying. So Great. they have S100 flight computers. Fly every ship in the club has is fully safety equipped with transponders and flarm, power flarm, and uh, um, uh, I mean it's a, it's a it's a really good club fleet. And just what Pawnee tow planes, something like that. Uh, we have a Pawnee and we have a Super Cup. Okay. And then we also have on the airfield, uh, we have a, a commercial operation. Uh, and they do mostly rides and training. And they also operate three Pawnees. So we have, we're in a super fortunate position that we can get toes on any day of the year. Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have 
there's this ample capacity for towing if we if we need it. And there's about 35 private ships at the airfield. So in, in peak times in the summer, there's there's a lot of it's it gets quite busy. And especially once once you know the, the once the the wind towards the mountain starts when the thermals pull the air in from the planes. Uh, at, Typically around 11 a.m., uh, everybody wants to get going at the same time. So, thir- 35 private ships. What you, was your membership? 100 or so? Uh, it's about 150 to 170. Oh, that's uh, nice. Yep. That's big. So, and, okay. and we've actually been growing. We're one of the few clubs uh, that that are still growing. Uh, we benefit greatly, obviously, from the positive demographics uh, in the area. I mean, this is a highly educated areas, a lot of uh, STEM yep. education, very outdoor-oriented, very adventure-oriented uh, population and, uh, and a good amount of growth uh, in the area. So it's great for the club. It's a relatively affluent area too, which helps obviously in, sure. a, in a sport that can be expensive. Well, it sounds like a, a lovely club. Uh, <laughs> at some point, I'll be driving my Volkswagen van across the States with my wife and uh, stopping by gliding clubs. So with a bit of luck uh, in the next couple of years, at some point, I'll drop by and have a flight. Yeah, that'd be cool. We should go in the in the, <laughs> in the 505. Yeah, yeah. works for <laughs> me. <laughs> Clement, it's a pleasure speaking to you again. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Yep, all right. Okay, Thank cheers. You, Bye. Yep, cheers. Bye. Clements Chipek spoke to me from Boulder, Colorado. The Soaring Society of Boulder's website is www.soaringboulder.org. That's soaringboulder.org. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada. Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about proving grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks, all one word, dot com. That's soaringtasks.com. Proving Grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. Up on the rugged mountains above the Franconia Airport in New Hampshire, USA, is the single wing of a glider. The story of why that wing is where it is is a bit of a mystery. It's a mystery that local glider pilot and FAA safety team manager Steve Brown was determined to figure out. I've reached Steve at his home in Laconia, New Hampshire. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you doing, Harry? I'm Thank doing, you. I'm doing really well and really intrigued about this story. So set the scene yeah. for me. Where is the Franconia Gliding Club located and what kind of geography is there? Uh, the Franconia Soaring Association is at the Franconia Airport, which is kind of on the northwest edge of the White Mountains of New Hampshire, uh, on the Appalachian Mountains along the East Coast. But it's basically... The closest you can get to rocky western flying on the East Coast. Uh, you know, we have Mount Washington with some of the worst weather in the world. We're very, very close to Mount Lafayette. Um, you know, a lot of mountainous flying. You know, not only do we have the thermal activity, but we get a lot of ridge soaring in, a lot of mountain wave flying in. We get a lot of convergence, too. You know, we you see it out on the West Coast, out uh, in the valleys and everything. But at the end of the day, 
you can kind of just hang around in the valley and not lose any altitude and just soar for an hour or two close to sunset as the convergence from all the winds coming down off of the mountains, you know, gather in the valley uh, at the end of the day. Now, this geography that you're talking about in this area, this plays into the story of this this mystery wing that you've sort of investigated and found out a bit more about this story. It's kind of lore. What, what piqued your interest? A few of us flying around always thought we had seen something uh, near Mount Kinsman and Kinsman Pond. And local lore was that it was the wing to a glider. Um, you know, and we, it was something we always kept talking about. And a few members or people from other nearby soaring clubs that had flown there, you know, 40 years ago would have a little bit of a story about, yeah, there was you know, a 233 that got caught behind the ridge uh, on a ridge day or something like that, uh, you know, or it was a 126 or it was this or that, uh, you know, nobody really knew the whole story, but there was this legend of a glider wing in the middle of the woods behind Mount Kinsman, behind what would normally be the ridge. Now, the, this, of um, course, piqued your interest. I mean, you're a, you also work for the FAA and the, and the safety uh, team there. So you had a combination of things here that piqued your interest and made you want to find out more? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, we taking a look at it. I had looked in the NTSB records and the FAA records, you know, and people were saying it was a 233 wing. Some would say maybe it was a 222. But there was nothing that corresponded in the records to it. You know, there had been a grobe years ago that we knew that put down on the ridge, you know, four or five miles north. Uh, back many years ago, even before this, there was a 126, but that was more, they didn't make it off of the ridge and make it all the way back to the airport because of strong headwinds. So nothing matched up to the area at all in any records, whether it was an accident or an incident. So what did you do? You, you hiked up the mountain and you continue to talk to people how did you try and figure this out yeah well we kept talking about it and those of us flying over you know after flying sometimes couple hey, couple you... beers at the flight line or not yeah, the flight exactly. line at the clubhouse yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you know we kept doing that and one of our members he's actually the president of the club uh jim david uh lives right in the area and he's an avid hiker outdoorsman uh he had hiked up there and actually did find it uh, based upon the lore in the area. And said, yeah, it really does look like a 233 wing. It might be a 222, but it really looks like a 233 wing and, and found out exactly where it was. And we kept talking about it, but we didn't find out anything more. We even had asked some local people through emails and in person. And, you know, we heard strange things like, yeah, there was an accident up there and a bunch of kids, you know, hiked up and hiked out a wing, figuring they'd turn the aluminum in for cash and, you know, go buy their favorite beverage, that sort of thing. But after doing one, they're like, no, we're not getting the other one. You know, all sorts of little things, but nothing concrete. And Jim and I, you know, talking about what I kind of do work-wise, safety-wise uh, for the FAA, helping to educate glider pilots, all of that. We said, hey, you know what? Why don't, in this age of COVID, why don't we hike up there, do a little bit of a test, 
try to create like a little bit of a story and safety video associated with this and see if we can find out more. So that's what we did is one day when <laughs> we basically didn't have a tow pilot in the middle of the week, but it was a great soaring day. We, we packed up and um, hiked up there to find it and take a look at it together. Now, I, I've seen that little video on YouTube, which is excellent, and I'll put a link up on my Facebook oh. page for that as well. Oh, thank you. But, yeah, so you guys get up there, you find the wing, and piece the story together for me from what you now know happened. Yeah. Well, I, I found out a lot more uh, because, thankfully, um, the proprietor of the commercial operation from that time, it happened back in 1971, uh, but the proprietor to that operation is still alive, and he happens to be um, out in the Lake Tahoe area uh, in his early 90s, if I recall, and stopped flying many, many years ago. But we were able to get in touch, and he filled me in a lot more uh, on the story on what did happen. But a, a, a simple thing to it is the, the commercial operation, they had somebody come in for like a four or five day long weekend to get some soaring experience there. They checked him out on the first day. And the second day, uh, he would took a, had a friend come visit him, and they went up flying on the ridge together. And in a 233 lower performance, did kind of get themselves in a position they probably really should not have been in and kind of landed or pancaked it um, in between North Kinsman, Mount Kinsman, and South Kinsman Peak in a flatter coal or rocky area of the two mountains. But for, um, just for the listeners, because I've seen the video, this is steep, rugged terrain. I oh, mean, yeah, just hiking yeah. up there, you're going to build up a sweat, and it's it's tough, you know? It's, it's a tough area. Yeah, it is. And that's the thing that is kind of amazing about it is, th from what I understand, they were not hurt. Uh, I also did find out it's part of the research I'm doing now to find out where the aircraft ultimately went, but the aircraft was rebuilt and sold to another soaring club. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I, I know the sister ship to it uh, from that commercial operation is still flying down in Florida now. But the actual one that it occurred to, I haven't found the results of where that is today. But so take uh, us back I've, to 1971. Even. So they, they crash up there, two people. Yep. What's the story of, uh, you know, their survival, essentially? They're in the, you know, days before cell phones and everything else. What yeah. happened? Well, they're very lucky. Nobody was hurt. Uh, they did basically, like I said, kind of pancake it into the flatter terrain, which also, thankfully is the one spot where the Appalachian Trail goes along. They they were probably, from what I've been told, within 50 to 100 yards of the Appalachian Trail, which is, even back in 1971, was a popular hiking trail up and down the east coast of the United States. Right, very famous. Um, yeah. Um, also, <laughs> they are lucky, is because they were out in the rocks versus in the trees, uh, they were noticed by other pilots and even noticed by uh, an employee of the Soaring Club from down on the ground. Not from the airport, but uh, the employee was down further 
on one of the roads and happened to look up on the mountain ridge and is like, well, that looks like a glider there, but it's hmm. not moving. It's not moving. And, you know, gets back to the airport and asks, and that's when everybody started to find out. Um, the, the, you know, the things you just can't make up when you look at accidents and incidents and all of this is the passenger to this actually did have, which has been confirmed, a prosthetic leg, which kind of interfered with the controls. Um, he had taken it off and he was up there flying without it. So <laughs> now they've crashed up on top of a mountain, you know, they're but the only way out is to hike out and, you know, his prosthetic leg uh, sorrowly is down on at the airport. <laughs> so to help him get about someone at the end of the day, and this was a late afternoon, you know, thankfully it was kind of early summer, but uh, somebody had to hike the leg up to him so that he could hike better um, out. Everybody had told us the lore was that he hiked down himself. Um, but what I was told by the proprietor uh, from that operation is he hiked across the Appalachian Trail to the top of a nearby ski area, Cannon Mountain, that has a tram. And that the pilot and the uh, passenger ended up taking the tram down the next morning. Uh, they actually, because of it getting dark, they ended up camping at a uh, Appalachian Mountain Club hut uh, at Kinsman Pond, right near where this wing is located. Well, bottom line is they're lucky to have survived this. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and lucky to only get out with bumps and bruises. And, you know, the, both the lore and hearing from the proprietor, I, I think both of them were beat up a bit more from the hiking than they were from the actual accident incident. And I, and I guess the lesson to be learned if you have a prosthetic leg is if you're going to go flying, take it with you. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I got to hand it to that, that person because, you know, that's so much more effort, I, I think, on their part. Uh, but, um, you know, to be able to hike out and, and deal with that. And, and it's a story of a lifetime, really, for everybody. So, so now 50 years later, there's yeah. a wing up on the mountain. But you've already told yes. me that that aircraft is now flying somewhere else, obviously with two wings, but the mystery wing yep. is still up there. But how did that all come together? Why is the rest of the glider not there? Yeah. Well, we always thought the lore was that they had landed in the pond, which uh, I found out after the video was made that that was not the case. How the wing ended up there uh, is, <laughs> I guess... Simple aerodynamics is they ended up hiring a helicopter that um, slung load, external loaded the fuselage out and brought it down. And then they went to um, helicopter out the wing and aerodynamically it started spinning on the helicopter pilot and the external load was starting to get out of control and he ended up dropping it uh, not far from where the accident did happen. But that's how the wing ended up in the spot that it did. And then at that point, it was just too deep into the woods and too damaged to recover. Right. And back 50 years ago, I guess, you, know, you, you could get away with that. <laughs> and what about wing number two? Wing number two was what led to them deciding to helicopter. Uh, we always had heard that some local 
um, people had heard about the accident and went up and grabbed the wing and hiked out with it in order to, you know, uh, turn it in for scrap, maybe get some money. But what I heard from the proprietor is actually the employees, uh, some of the younger employees from the place went up and hiked out the wing. You know, it was a multiple day affair. Yeah. Hiking over that terrain, you know, a lot of young guys, <laughs> you know, full of whatever it is that young yeah. guys are full of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and right. hiked it out. But they then decided after hiking out the first wing that it just really was so much, so much work. Uh, that's why they ended up going and hiring a helicopter to do an external load with the rest of it. Now, you got up close and personal with this wing. You guys hiked up there. Yes. It, it, it must have been sort of fun to finally see this mystery wing up close and discover a bit more of the story. It is. It's almost visceral to be able to be there, look around. And especially for Jim and I, as you'll see in the video, is we really at that time didn't know anything other than it was there. And to let your mind kind of wander about how did this get here? How could this have happened? What decisions could have been made, good or bad, that led some pilot at some time to have a piece of aircraft right here in the middle of the forest? And and no FAA accident reports, nothing, no paper trail. They just swept it under the carpet. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say they swept it under the carpet. There is no paper trail. Uh, again, this is something, you know, I found out after, after some people had seen it and I started to hear from people about um, the video, is the proprietor to that commercial operation. Uh, at the time, the FAA had flight service stations all over the country and multiples in each state. Uh, the nearest one at the time to where this accident occurred was Lebanon, New Hampshire. And according to the proprietor, they called them and said, hey, we've we've had what may be an accident up on the ridge, you know, with a glider, so forth and so on. And, you know, talking to whoever was there at the flight service station at the time was, is anybody hurt? No, actually, we've, we've made radio contact. Nobody's hurt. They're able to walk out and all of that. And, okay, well, how's the airplane? Uh, it's beat up we we probably will rebuild rebuild it and it's like okay well we're not okay. interested then <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so that's that's how i believe there ended up never ever being a, a paper trace as I, I think at that time it got classified as an incident and technically an incident is not required uh, most incidents let me rephrase that most incidents are not required to be um, notified to the National Transportation Safety Board or to the FAA. So, well, it's a it's a great story, and I what would be fabulous? I'd love to be able to talk to the pilot or the passenger. Maybe somebody out there that listens to this podcast will uh, will know who it is and let me know, and we can do the interview fifty years later. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know who it is. Uh, I, the one piece of information I have gotten uh, is it was. Uh, F-4 pilot, I believe, Air Force. <laughs> um, but specifically, that was a piece of information I got from the proprietor and from a couple other people, that the pilot was um, an F-4 pilot who also flew gliders. 
Uh, that's what I do know. Okay. And that his friend also, you know, was uh, a military buddy, uh, his friend that had the prosthetic leg. Right. I don't know if he was a pilot or not, but I kind of suspect so. Well, there's a story there as well. I'm sure. I'm sure. Steve, listen, thank you so much for telling us about this this mystery wing up on the mountain above your gliding club. It's a, it's a great story, and uh, thanks so much for telling it to me. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Take care, Steve. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Steve Brown spoke to me from Laconia, New Hampshire. To see the video Steve made, go to YouTube and search for The Glider Accident That Never Happened. That's The Glider Accident That Never Happened on YouTube. That's it for episode number 21 of The Thermal. I will be back again early April with another show, though we'll include a chat with two glider pilots who also happen to be out-of-work commercial pilots. When will they get back into the silver tubes to pay for their gliding habits? Thanks for all the positive feedback. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so that the show will download automatically every time there's a new episode. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.